Hey everybody, I'm Dan from Portland, Oregon. I'm Kate from Minneapolis. I'm Zach from Madison, Wisconsin. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and please click on Donate. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program is Dan Charnas. He's held basically every position there is to hold outside of artists in the world of hip-hop. Um, and has made the transition from a record company guy to writer. His new gargantuan book is, I think, one of the better books about hip-hop I've ever read. It's called The Big Payback, The History of the Business of Hip-Hop. Dan Charnas, welcome to The Sound of Young America. Thanks for having me. So um, the obvious question is, uh, there are all these books of hip-hop history, you know, uh, uh, Jeff Chang's don't, Can't Stop, Won't Stop, and, um, uh, you know, uh, Brian Coleman's Check the Technique, and, and a million others. Um, why did you think it was important to write a book that was specifically about the business side of hip-hop? That's a really good question. I, I, I want to note that Jeff Chang's book, Can't Stop, Won't Stop, was really, um, you know, one of the big inspirations for writing this book, because what Jeff did was he really wrote the first linear history of the culture and and mo- more specifically of the generation um but it, none of uh, the great books of hip hop really talked about how number 1 how the records were made not in terms of how they were made in the studio but how the artists got signed how they got developed how they got pushed out into the world but then the larger question of how did this obscure street culture that nobody knew about from the streets of New York become within 30 years uh, the world's predominant pop culture and a multi-billion dollar business? And I, I, you just can't tell that story, which is a great American story, uh, without talking about the business people. How do you think the relationship between uh, hip-hop as a, as a form of culture um, and certainly as a form of music and its business side is different from the relationship between, say, rock and roll and its business side or soul music and its business side or gospel music and its business side or, or electronic dance music and its business side. Hmm. Uh, I think that it's because hip-hop, uh, more than any of those other genres, really began uh, shut out of some of the major institutions that uh, really helped birth those other uh, forms and genres of music. Um, hip-hop was shut out of the clubs. Uh, you know, the kid, or the kids, really, who created hip-hop were shut out of the nightclubs in New York City. So they had to go to the parks and, and create their own little parties. And uh, when this stuff started to jump onto record, the major labels wanted nothing to do with it. So it fell to the independents to uh, to work with this music. So over and over again, you get this uh, phenomenon of being shut out, and as a result of being shut out, you have to create your own institutions. That isn't to say that hip-hop doesn't have some of the same tensions between art and commerce that a lot of these other genres have, but I think rock in particular has this very anti-commercial streak. You know, it's not cool to sell it. And I think hip-hop almost unabashedly uh, sells itself 
You know, they talk about the four elements of hip hop, uh, DJing, emceeing, breakdancing and graffiti. And sometimes they talk about a fifth element, which would be style or fashion. I think that there's a sixth element of marketing. Let's talk a little bit about um, this history from a, a sort of linear historical perspective. Um, what was the birth of hip-hop as uh, as a business? Well, the first real guy to sort of look at this stuff and try to make a buck on it, who wasn't a part of it, was a guy named Sal Abitello, who founded a club called the Disco Fever in the South Bronx. And the Disco Fever really provided the first regular venue for DJs like Flash to come in off the streets and have a home, a residence. Uh, but the jump to records really happened in 1979. Uh, and although Rapper's Delight wasn't the first record, it really was the record that started the hip-hop business in the sense that it was just so successful, so huge. I mean, the record Rapper's Delight even outperformed the song that it recreated, which was Good Times by Chic. Which was no small hit in and of itself. Hmm, that's right. I said a hip the hip the hip it, the hip hip hop, you don't stop. Rock it out, baby, bubble to the boogity bang bang, the boogie to the boogie beat. Now what you hear is not a test, I'm rapping to the beat. And me, the groove, and my friends are gonna try to move your feet. You see, I am Wonder Mike, and I like Let's talk a little bit about uh, Rapper's Delight, the record that brought uh, rapping to the masses. I honestly, frankly, I wasn't even born when the record came out, but I remember my mom telling me the story of um, her best friend in, in DC uh, calling her on the phone and saying, I was out at a club and I heard this song and you're not going to believe it. Wow. Um, this was a song that was not even recorded by what one might call actual rappers. That's right. That's right. It was a prefab group, the Prefab Three, uh, put together by Sylvia Robinson. Now, Sylvia's story is really interesting. Um, she had a big hit in the 1950s with the, uh, as part of this act, Mickey and Sylvia. A uh, song was called Love is Strange. Um, and again, she had a hit, a disco hit, or sort of a pre-disco hit with Pillow Talk in 1973. But by 1979... She's basically gone on the skids, right? So uh, she's at this religious revival in New Jersey, and she prays for a miracle. And that night in Harlem, she sees her first rapper at the club Harlem World, and she decides she's going to make a record with you know one of these rapping guys. But only the problem is she can't really find anybody. So her little uh, son, her son Joey Joe Junior. goes and finds uh, a couple of his friends uh, to audition. And it turns into this big mass audition in her car outside of a pizza parlor in Englewood, New Jersey. (laughs) And they all go back to Sylvia's house and the audition continues and she decides on these three guys and she points at them and says, "Uh, you are now the Sugar Hill Gang. Uh, You three are married. And then she goes off to take a nap. It's sort of like she just says, uh, hey, can you bring me some teenagers? Right. Exactly. Now, uh, I want to give the Sugar Hill Gang a little bit of of its due here. Yes, they were not MCs from the scene across the river uh, in the Bronx. But um, what uh, Big Bank Hank and Wonder Mike uh, and Master G were able to do vocally, performance-wise, 
was pretty darn good. And if it hadn't been good, I don't think Rapper's Delight would have done as well as it did. And a lot of it owes to the gene, the production genius of uh, Sylvia, who recreated uh, Good Times almost perfectly in the studio um, and was able to create a song that didn't have a chorus but had a lot of dynamics in it. Um, and, of course, the genius of her husband, Joe Robinson, who promoted the hell out of this record uh, until it you know, got onto the pop charts in 1979. The first rap record, really, actually makes it onto the pop charts and sells millions and millions of records. Some people even believe it is the best-selling 12-inch single of all time, except we will never know because Joe Robinson never let the RIAA, Recording Industry Association of America, get a look at his books. It really is a 12-inch single, too. I mean, this thing is due in part, as you write in the book, to uh, uh, Sylvia Robinson's um, uh, mission from God. Uh, (laughs) It's like a a 15-minute long song. Yeah, she says, this is the way the Lord gave the song to me. I'm not changing a thing. It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Dan Charnis, is the author of a new history of the business of hip hop. It's called The Big Payback. Let's talk about uh, the so-called new school, um, the rappers uh, and musicians that came after that very first generation of performers. Um, what was the difference from a business standpoint and, and in part from an aesthetic standpoint between, uh, say, Run DMC and... Uh, uh, you know, Melly Mel and Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five or the Sugar Hill Gang? That's a, another great question. I, you know, aesthetically, it's very simple. Um, Melly Mel and, and you know, the Treacherous Three and, and those first generation of records from, say, 79 to 82, 83, um, they were really rapping over disco records, rapping over disco instrumentals. Um, they weren't even rapping over what was traditionally considered to be the canon of breaks, which were the, you know, these real gritty funk and soul records that people like Bambata and Herc and Flash would play in the streets. These sort of um, impeach the president type songs. Exactly. Yes. So they didn't they didn't rap over that stuff. It was ve- it sounded like rap over disco. What Run DMC represented was a return to the beat. Run DMC basically stripped all the music away and took it down to a beat. Uh, and that was their first single, It's Like That and Sucker MCs. And they were the sonic brainchild of Russell Simmons, um, who basically just didn't want 
he knew that rap music didn't sound like that in the streets, and he wanted to make records that sounded a little more authentic. Now, business-wise, Russell really packaged Run DMC. Run DMC was a visual package. It was a sonic package. They sounded like themselves. They had a unique name that actually Run and DMC hated when Russell first suggested it because it didn't sound like, you know, the Funky Fours and the Furious Fives and all that. It was just Run DMC. It didn't even make any sense. Um, But it did once people started hearing the music and seeing them on videos. And that really brought in that next era uh, of hip-hop, that what we might call the beatbox era. This was all going down at a time that was not very long after um, the uh, uh, the anti-disco movement, which was a movement that was in part fueled by aesthetics, but also in part fueled by um, uh, basically racism and homophobia. Mm-hmm. And the idea that rap might be more than what disco was, which is to say a sort of three or four year phenomenon, uh, was not certain. Um, So what was the relationship in this very beginning of the new school in this, in this time of the beginnings of run DMC and, and the first successes of Curtis blow uh, with the national business world, the big record labels, uh, the big radio stations and so forth. Well, it, it was it's exactly as you portray it. Um, it was viewed as sort of a bastard child of disco. Um, really, nobody in major labels or at uh, pop radio stations or black radio stations, for that matter, really knew what to do with this stuff. Um, so they just didn't do much. Curtis Blow uh, was signed. Uh, he becomes the first ma- uh, rapper signed to a major label in the in late 1979, just because he writes a Christmas song and it does well. So he he gets to stay on Mercury, uh, you know, until the mid 80s. But between Curtis Blow's signing and say the deal that Def Jam does for itself in 1985, there really is nothing on the major labels uh, as far as rap is concerned. You already talked a little bit about Russell Simmons, mm-hmm. um, but tell me a, a little bit about what was so unique about Russell Simmons' vision uh, that led him to essentially, you know, help change the course of world culture. Well, we t- we discussed a part of it in in terms of his willingness to see uh, rappers as artists with a certain amount of, of dignity and, and artists with, with images and artists with fan bases. Uh, and I don't know if Sylvia and Joe Robinson had that vision for their artists. But the big part of Russell's you know, 
step up was when he founds or, or not founds, but basically becomes partners in a record company. Um, he is approached basically by a young college student at NYU named Rick Rubin, uh, who produced a record that Russell absolutely loved called It's Yours, because again, it was one of these beat driven, no music kinds of hip hop records. And Rick comes to him and says, you know, I want to start this record company and take it to the next level. You know how to promote this stuff. Um, I'll do all the work. You just be my partner. And that's how Rick, this college student, gets Russell Simmons, one of the best promoters in, if not the best promoter in, in rap, to become his business partner. And their first record together is uh, a record called I Need a Beat by LL Cool J, whom we all know. I need a and that begins the life of Def Jam as the transcendent hip-hop brand. And as Sugar Hill begins to fall, Def Jam begins to rise, and that's when they get their big uh, major label distribution contract with uh, Columbia slash CBS. More on the business of hip-hop with Dan Charnas after a break. It's the Sound of Young America for MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Production of the Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. If you're interested in joining us at MaximumFun.org as an intern, you can find information on how to apply at MaximumFun.org slash internships. We're currently accepting applications for interns for the summer term. If you want more information on how you can become an intern at MaximumFun.org, just visit MaximumFun.org slash internships. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Dan Charnis, is the author of a new history of the business of hip-hop. It's called The Big Payback. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the ways that the hip-hop business changed uh, in that sort of key turning point period, the period that for, for hip-hop music fans is often known as the golden age of hip-hop. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, the years between the, the the end of the 1980s and the beginning of the 1990s. Um, as Def Jam and uh, New York hip-hop are flourishing in New York City and starting to make real impact across the country, um, there are these other places where other hip-hop things are going down. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, as a person of, of my age and uh, being a native of San Francisco, uh, uh, the story of the Bay Area is particularly important to me. Um, but how was the Bay Area hip hop scene in 1988 or 1990 uh, different than what was going on anywhere else in terms of business? Well, in the Bay Area specifically, there arose this sort of incredible network of college radio shows um, just because of the geographic concentration of so many different little little cities and metropolitan areas in in the bay area you know san francisco and oakland and san jose there were all these shows uh available i think at one point there was something like 
I don't know, 100 hours of hip-hop programming per week in the Bay Area on college radio alone. Um, and there are these personalities who emerge in the Bay Area, too, uh, that become sort of the founding fathers of the Bay Area rap business. Davey D., David Cook, um, who was a transplant from the Bronx, actually, and his friend who also went to high school with him in the Bronx, Kevy Kev, who does the longstanding uh, rap show on Stanford's uh, radio station, KZSU. So all of these guys have created this atmosphere in the Bay Area where rap artists can come into the Bay and get their records played on all these different stations. Kids are hearing it. So it makes it possible for a pop station like KMEL to play rap in the daytime and it be not too much of a thing. Like, everybody's kind of used to it. it. It just becomes this really, really fertile area and KMEL becomes the very first pop station in the country to have a rap a dedicated rap show on its programming schedule. Uh, and that's the Wake Up Show, which debuts in 1990. What's going on, y'all? DJ King Tech, world famous Wake Up Show. Don't forget... You can- Sway and Tech, were, were, uh, who are the hosts of the Wake Up Show, were guests a few years ago on The Sound of Young America. Really, really interesting, amazing guys. And I remember that time in... I remember that time in Bay Area Radio... Um, although I have to admit, I, I have to admit, I was a, I was probably a bigger Tony 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 fan than I was E Forty <laughs> fan. Um, but there was this, there was this thing going on where uh, first Too Short and then uh, uh, E Forty and and then from that Master P were creating essentially completely independent empires that were almost purely regional, um, but. It, they were making so much money off of regional records. This is something that is actually still goes on in the Bay Area um, that they didn't even need to make a national impact. I mean, the example of Digital Underground and Hammer, who had had these monster hits, mm-hmm. um, was there. But on the other hand, when E40 could sell, you know, 40,000 records in Vallejo, a city of 50,000, <laughs> um, they didn't really need it. So how did having these uh, these people entering the national business uh, in such a strong position of power, people like E-40 and, and then Master P, who founded No Limit Records, change the relationship between uh, these musicians and the people who ran national record companies? Uh, it upended it. It really did. I mean, those entrepreneur, artist entrepreneurs that you speak of, E40 and Master P, uh, and and then uh, Cash Money out of New Orleans, really upended the relationship between uh, artists and and labels, and between black artists and their art. Um, for the first time, um, really, black artists in America began demanding that they keep most of the equity for what they produced, which is just unprecedented and amazing. And uh, and I, I can't forget also that New York had its own local version of this in the Wu-Tang Clan, um, although it plays out a little differently in that the Wu-Tang Clan doesn't create its own independent uh, record empire like Master P does. But what they do is they say, we're going to, we have so many members that we're going to sign each of our members to a different major label, right? Uh, and as a result, every major label will be promoting us and serving us. So 
the mid-1990s saw this real radical change in the relationship between big business and hip-hop, and that hip-hop starts to really become big business. There's a lot of tension in the early to mid-1990s between big business and, uh, I guess, what you could loosely call street business. Hmm. Um and a lot of the capital in these um a lot of the capital in these small operations um these small record com- operations are coming from less than legal sources <laughs> as is often the case i mean you write about the the role of numbers running in the sixties uh, and seventies in the very beginning of the book that's right um tell me a little bit about that relationship between um between these people who had made their made their money made their stake in uh in drugs and these people who had who were you know record executive type dudes well you know it i i i tend to look at it as a as both a hip hop fan and a writer and a thinker about this kind of stuff i look at it less from you know oh it's illegal kind of perspective and more of, you know, what is the economy in this neighborhood? What is the economy of this community? And how can these people make a living for themselves in this completely deindustrialized, underdeveloped, abandoned place? So the answer is people hustled. People did whatever they could. And the, 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 the fact that people went from drug dealing to hip hop as opposed to the other way around, I think speaks to the deep um, ethics and the deep uh, uh, love and the deep artistry and the deep um, uh, soul of all of these people uh, who who made that journey. And I think Jay-Z is, is a good example of that. I mean, Jay-Z was making tons of money on the street uh, in the late 1980s. I think he has a line, he says, I'm still spending money from 88. He may very well be, right? But he wanted to give that up for a, a, a career that, that you know, could very well have turned out to be much less lucrative. Um, and he did it because he was called to do it. It was his vocation. Um, and I, I think that hip-hop provided, in many ways, a whole other economy um, for a group of folks who lived in places that had been almost purposefully underdeveloped by public policy, by neglect, by white supremacy. Uh, so, yeah, there is a lot of back and forth between uh, the hustle, whether it be the numbers game or the drug game or whatever, and the record business. But I think in many ways it shows that uh, given control of its finest product, right, a community will will flock to that, will we'll, we'll create businesses around that. And that's another one of the great achievements of hip-hop and a great American story that I think needed to be told. It's interesting to me, and, and I wonder what you think of this, that as the, as the hip-hop business and as all these entrepreneurs sort of fought to extricate themselves from, uh, from the street... Um, and from those kind of high risk, high reward, uh, illegal businesses, um, at that same time, the rhetoric of hip hop was shifting dramatically 
toward the street. And um, and that has been in some ways sort of the, the dominant rhetorical mode of hip hop for the past um what is this 2011 so the past something between 15 and and 20 years um why and how do you think that happened well i think you're right i mean nobody got away clean you know when you're coming from that community it's really hard to get away clean like to get away quick to get away clean to leave it behind jay-z uh you know talked about it recently when he was promoting his book decoded uh that you know, just because I'm got a record deal um, doesn't mean I'm not going back to the place that I live. Doesn't mean that I don't have the same friends around me and 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 friends who are you know still very much in that mode. Um, and it takes a while, I think, when you're when you've grown up in trauma, and you know, for m- many folks, the hustle is trauma. Right? It takes a while to get out of that mode. Um, and I also think it's important to note that. Uh, Violent braggadocio does not have its roots in gangster rap. It is very, very much part of the African-American oral tradition. Um, Roger Abrams, a sociologist, wrote a book in 1963, I believe, called Deep Down in the Jungle, uh, where he went out to the street corners of Philadelphia and recorded basically the, the, uh, the impromptu rhymes and routines of guys who, you know, uh, African-American men who stood around on street corners. Uh, and it was if you read those rhymes, they end up in so much hip hop um, from Schooly D, a Philadelphia rapper uh, from the mid 1980s uh, to the Beastie Boys to N.W.A. to Ice-T, uh, that all of this stuff has deep, deep roots in street corner culture where what's really important is, you know, talking S, right? It's it's what you're doing. It's kind of. Uh, almost a synonym for rap, you know, rapping is to talk S. And one of the wonderful things about the golden age of hip hop is that it was this sort of self-regulating mechanism that that came up uh, among these artists, most of them who were in New York, but a lot of non-New York artists who were welcomed into into sort of this hip hop nation as well. Uh, and this was around the time that uh, artists got together to do songs like Self-Destruction, the Stop the Violence Movement, We're All in the Same Gang, that there were certain things that artists did back then that were kind of frowned upon. You know, if you kind of strayed out, if you said something wrong about black women, if you, uh, you know, if you kind of went off the ranch a little too much, you, you kind of got smacked back. Um, and hip hop, as it became successful, lost that self-regulate, self-regulating mechanism um, for a number of reasons. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Dan Charnis, is the author of a new history of the business of hip-hop. It's called The Big Payback. I want to steer the conversation back to um, aesthetics for a second. The, the other great sort of conflict in hip-hop as it developed from exciting musical genre to global super force was an aesthetic one. And and while I'm not old enough to remember a lot of the stuff uh, in, you know, the first 10 years of hip-hop's history, I do remember this one. And, and that is that it, hip-hop had developed an aesthetic that was, in some ways, uh, anathema to what was on the radio. It was created as an oppositional force. 
Um, and in the uh, early 1990s, between the early 1990s and the mid-1990s, um, the aesthetics of hip-hop changed pretty significantly, especially of the hip-hop that was on the radio, um, in terms of uh, essentially embracing uh, uh, pop music and especially R&B, although you know, the history of the last 20 years of pop music is essentially an R&Bification. Um, but tell me a little bit about how the business side of things like rappers, uh, things like rappers having singing on their songs um, developed as, as the landscape changed. Well, it's, it's funny because when I think of, you know, it's true to me when I listen to a lot of so-called hip hop now, it sounds like pop music to me. The you know in terms of the actual aesthetics, the chord changes, you know the the very very simple construction, very simple chords and 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 harmony, um, very simple melody, uh, and it wasn't like that in the mid nineties to me, it was very complex and jazzy. And, you know, you had, even though I think a lot of hip hop producers didn't think in these terms, you had like, you know, tensions all over the place, 11ths and 13ths and things like that. Uh, you know, when you listen to the music of tribe called quest or Jay Dilla, you know, you would, you would hear music like that. How did we get from this very complex art form to this very sort of simple and perhaps musically dumbed down, uh, art form, but if I if I could interject, I mean, you know, I think you can you can say that about um, uh, about Jay Dilla or, or a tribe called Quest, and certainly in the early and mid nineteen nineties. But parallel to that, I mean, you know, most of the huge hits of I think a, a truly, you know, I don't think anyone disagrees that uh, Notorious B.I.G. is a great rapper um, are very reliant on pop melodies. Yeah, no, I see your point. Um, and I think that that had a lot to do with the production ethos of Sean Combs, that uh, what Puff did in the studio was to take things that were already hits uh, and have people rap over them in the tradition, in many ways, of DJ Hollywood and the and the rapping DJs of the discos in Harlem in the 1970s. Some of the same um, records, too. Yes, some of the same records, exactly. Uh, so I think that, yes, uh, Puff had a lot to do with that. Um, and, of course, there was a counter-movement to him, and that would have been the Wu-Tang Clan, right, which was very dirty, rough, rugged, and raw. Um, but ultimately, I think it's Puff's ethos that wins, and I think Jay-Z sort of helps carry it to another level and maybe a symbolic turning point, you know, of that that aesthetic movement of which you speak would be Hard Knock Life by Jay-Z, where you're actually taking... Not only a pop song, but a Broadway show tune that children all over the country and the world know. Um, you know, I grew up with my little sisters singing that <laughs> that song in the car, and it was part of like the hottest hip hop tune, uh, you know, of the late 1990s. Let's actually hear that song. I think it's a really. I think a lot of people dismissed it as the stupidest pop song ever when it came out. I think it's a really great song. Um, let's hear Jay-Z and Hard Knock Life, produced by the 45 King, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. From standing on the corner, 
is poppin' To driving some of the hottest cars New York has ever seen For dropping some of the hottest verses rappers ever heard From the dope spot with the smoke block Clingin' the murder scene You know me well from nightmares of a lonely cell My only hell was since when y'all niggas know me to fail Nah, we all my niggas with the rubber grips Or shots And if you with me, mama, rubber your th- And what not I'm from the school of the hard knocks We must not let outsiders violate our blocks And my block, let's stick up the world and split it 50-50 Uh-huh, let's take the dough and stay real jiggy Uh-huh, let's sip the Chris and get pissy-pissy Flow infinitely like the memory of my n***a Biggie Baby, you know it's hell when I come through The life and times of Sean Carden it, volume two In this period of inflection, of the mid-1990s, um, one of the biggest things that that made hip-hop's cultural impact be more than just uh, a- as a form of music was its openness to, uh, to essentially to branding and business partnerships. Um, the first huge national brand that essentially staked its business on hip-hop uh, was the soda pop Sprite. <laughs> um, let's hear a little bit of uh, one of Sprite's early commercials in their Obey Your Thirst campaign. Yeah. Give a pound to my man with my right hand because yes. I, I keep the Sprite in the left hand okay. and then I push the button when I don't want to hear nothing. I let it go when I want to hear something. Yeah. This is how we flow when we in the studio. Freestyle with Sprite, yo, how the rest go. First things first, a big yo third right? So this is essentially a, a B minus seven up, a, a soda that was that didn't have much of an identity, um, and they made what was then a very revolutionary choice to say we're going to be the soda of hip hop, and. Again, at the time, a very revolutionary choice. They said, we're going to do it by being as credible as we possibly can. In other words, we're not going to hire, um, you know, maybe Pepsi hired Michael Jackson and, and MC Hammer. Um, but we're not going to hire them. We're going to hire Grand Poobah. Uh, you know, and we're going to let him talk about uh, kind of odd, you know, uh, Nation of Gods and Earth 5% or stuff in our national television commercials. <laughs> um, how, how did that change the business of hip-hop? Well, um, you know, the first thing I would say is that, it, you know, Sprite wasn't sold on that idea. They had to be sold on it um, by a young black marketing executive uh, named Daryl Cobbin, um, who uh, mastered uh, the internal computer system that crunched all the data in Coca-Cola, so he was able to sort of prove that if you put a little money against this, um, that you Sprite could not only win with its core demo, which were uh, mothers and kids, right, uh, like soccer moms basically and little kids, uh, but also in the African-American and Latino markets. And so armed with this data and armed with some cultural knowledge, he commissioned some commercials from uh, an ad agency in Chicago called Burrell, which specialized in the African-American uh, market. 
And even Burrell had to be sold on it because there was only one guy in Burrell who understood hip-hop culture. And there's this great moment uh, in the big payback where um, uh, Daryl Cobbin calls Burrell and tells somebody, I need you to get uh, uh, Primo to do the beats for this commercial. And the person at Burrell says, Primo? And Daryl Cobbin says, DJ Premier. Primo. Get me Primo. And so he hangs up the phone, and about five minutes later, somebody from Burrell calls him and says, Who are you? Right, Just this disembodied voice. Uh, and he introduces himself. He says, No, 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 no. Did you just call here asking for Primo? Who are you? And that's the voice of Reginald Jolly, who works at Burrell, who finds his analog at, at the Coca-Cola company. Two guys in these very stiff corporate environments who love and understand hip-hop. And it's these two guys, Batman and Robin, who sort of create this campaign called Obey Your Thirst, which within two years takes Sprite uh, to doubles Sprite's market share and makes it the fastest-growing soft drink in America and eventually empowers Sprite to take away the NBA sponsorship from Coca-Cola. You know... Lemon-lime soft drinks weren't supposed to succeed against colas. It just didn't happen. But then again, hip-hop wasn't supposed to succeed against pop. But that's exactly what Sprite did, and Sprite is that Sprite campaign is sort of a metaphor for what hip-hop did. And Daryl Cobbin likes to say that what the Obey Your Thirst campaign did for corporate America was that it proved to corporate America that, you know, it's okay, Procter & Gamble, it's okay, IBM, you know, Sprite took a chance on hip-hop and it's beating everybody. Um, And it's at that point, Sprite sort of sets the archetype for dealing with hip-hop straight on, dealing with black culture and by extension black people straight on, rather than trying to water it down, uh, make it slap happy, uh, and that was sort of a feature of Um, quote-unquote minority-geared advertising uh, for many, many years. And um, hip-hop helps to change the tone of that. I think you could find a lot of um, Grand Puba fans that are wary of those kind of partnerships, even now, even 15 or so years later. Um. Do you think that that is can fairly be described for for hip hop culture as a success story? Well, I'm sure that there are some folks who would not think that that's a success story. Then they're the same folks who, in rock and roll, said you know that when endorsements started coming in, it ruined rock and roll. Um, and yeah, whenever anything becomes mainstreamed and moneyed, it becomes debased. Um, there's no question that. Um, uh, you know, the intersection of art and commerce, commerce always sort of sullies the art. But I think it also goes the other way, too, that I think that hip hop began to color the rest of our culture um, in some really great ways. And you have you, you, you have to have one to have the other. And there's no stopping it. I mean, if something is powerful and if something is profitable, People are going to find a way to make money doing it. And I, I was just happy as a, a person in the business and as a fan that uh, for the first time in American culture, um, the artists and entrepreneurs of the culture found a way to take part 
in that process rather than be shut out of it and just simply exploited and, and you know, and, and sent away. Thank you so much, Dan. It was really a pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, man, it's awesome. This is one of the most fun interviews I've done. Dan Charnis is the author of a new history of the business of hip-hop. It's called The Big Payback. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our music is provided to us by Dan Wally. Our editor is Nick White, producer Julia Smith. Our intern is Lindsay Palmer, and our development director is Teresa Thorne. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, where you can download all of our shows for free. If you have thoughts about the show, you can email me directly, personally, at jesse at MaximumFun.org. We'll see you next time on The Sound of Young America. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com.